Welcome to our latest webinar as part of the Aussie Speaker Series, Let's Talk. My name is Amy Conacher, and I am the Executive Director of the Australian American Chamber of Commerce, and I'm excited to have you all with us today. Before we begin, we would like to thank our generous sponsors for their support, BHP, United Airlines, the Australian Consulate General Houston, Platypus Brewing, Chevron, JLL, Macquarie, Worley, Air New Zealand, Energy Conference Network, the Fervid Group, Rystad Energy, and UHD Maryland Davies College of Business. Without their support, our programs would not be possible. I would like to introduce you to Christina Stabe. Christina is the Chamber President, and she is also President of Tarkula Ventures, LLC, and she will be conducting the session today with Barbara. So I'll hand over to you. Thank you very much, Amy. Welcome everyone to Women in Technology, a webinar series produced by the Australian American Chamber of Commerce in Texas. Um, the AACC is a nonprofit organization whose mission is connecting the US and Australia through business, culture, and education. I'm Christina Stave, board president of the AACC. This webinar is produced as part of our Australian Innovation and Investment, or Aussie, series of programming. Um, our virtual Aussie programming is the AACC's platform for sharing digital content that brings together innovators from the US and Australia across medical, energy, government, and technology sectors. This webinar is the third in a series that have been focused on women leaders in technology. Today, I'm pleased to introduce our speaker, Barbara Berger. Barbara is the VP Innovation, President of Technology Ventures at Chevron. Barbara, thanks so much for joining us. We're so pleased to have you today uh, to talk to us about leading corporate venture capital and the energy transition. Thank you. But before we jump into our topic, I wanna start with your story, Barbara, because you have such an exciting role right at the intersection of venture capital and the energy transition. Can you tell us how you came to lead Chevron Technology Ventures? And did you have experiences in your past that help you with the leadership roles that you have now? Sure, well, and thanks for the invitation to come and, and talk to your organization. So I moved into this role and to Houston in 2013 after many, many assignments in Chevron. I started in technology and then I had a bunch of business management roles in the, primarily in the downstream and they were, they were global, they were operational, customer facing. And I learned a lot of things you asked, you know, did you have some experience? I learned, learned a lot of things, how money got made, Mm -hmm. um, how technology and business intersect, um, what things were both the same and different around the, the globe, and, and lots of other things. Um, but I got offered this job and asked to move to Houston in 2013, and I did something, and I've shared this story with a number of folks, um, is I went to um, a member of the selection team and said, so why me? Mm -hmm. um, what was it about me that... Um, you know, that, that put my name on the top. And I think it's a good question to ask um, when you get a new job. Yeah. And, and, and what she said was really interesting. Um, she didn't fall back on, well, you know, technology, you know, business and everything. She said, you have a demonstrated track record of being able to say both yes and no. Mm -hmm. And I've, I thought about that at the time and I didn't really realize how profound it was. And the more I've gotten into this job, the ability to say both yes and no is really important. You know, because it's, it's, it's how we do what we do is important, but what we work on, which is sort of the yes and no, 
is so important um, because there's so many opportunities and so we have to select the ones that we work on. So I thought about that over time and I do find myself saying both words and um, sometimes my team is saying no and I'm saying, well, what about yes? And less times and it's not, it's not so much fun when they say yes and I say, well, no, we can't do that. Um, I try to minimize those. So, um, so that's how I kind of got in and um, you know, been doing it for about seven years. Well, thanks for that. That is so insightful. I think we can all take us take that with us in these in these uncertain times, thinking about what we need to say yes to, what we need to say no to. Um, let's start with the like the exploding trend of corporate venture capital or VCC, um, CVC. You know, today there's more than like two thousand corporations that have now engaged themselves in venture capital, which is more than a more than double than a decade ago. And I think last year corporates accounted for more than twenty percent of all venture deals. But Chevron was early to the game, um, establishing CTV in 1999. What was the thinking then? Yeah, so it was, first of all, I wanna thank the folks that came at the beginning and created this organization and the folks at the top that have supported it from all over those 21 years. And it was really a focus of and I think this is important for large established companies is how do you look, how do you make sure that you've got an eye to the outside and that you are looking at things as much as possible through a different set of eyes than you might through your conventional paradigms. And corporate venture is one way that you can do that. Um, and so that was really the early thinking. And, and you know, we're, ba we're headquartered in the Bay Area, uh, venture capital, um, is a, is a very common and, and integral part of the economy. So I think there were, there were a number of reasons maybe why we were, why we were one of the first. Why we were the longstanding is, is just the role we play in the company um, to be able to have those eyes and ears out in the ecosystem, but then also to access that technology and bring it into the company uh, to accomplish the objectives of the company. I mean, it, what we've worked on has changed dramatically over those 21 years because the energy industry has changed dramatically. But it's always been that, um, you know, the, that, that eye to the outside that was why we were uh, created and still exist. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so you mentioned being close to the, the Bay Area. And um, for, our, for our audience, I think it's important to point out that corporate venture investors are different than traditional VC investors in that um, strategic returns can be as important as the returns on investment or ROIs. So I'd be interested to know if, if we think of a sliding scale between strategic and financial returns, where do you see CTV on that scale? And, and do you use other metrics relative to Chevron's overall strategy to capture the performance of your investments? Yeah, no, it's a really good question, but I, I did want to say before I get to how we think about it that, you know, in venture, <clears throat> unlike say M&A, we're investing as a syndicate. So it's, mm -hmm. it's also the diversity of the co-investors that's really important. And, you know, I think there's a role for the strategics, there's a role for the financials, there's a role for the founders, you know, so, so I think that diversity and, you know, having different um, backgrounds of the investors is important. Um, we have something like over 175 current co-investors. We learn a lot from them as well as the startups. 
But in terms of, you know, so how do we think about this? Of course, you can always measure the return on your, um, on your investment. And, you know, you don't get a real return from a financial um, perspective on the strict investment until there's some sort of exit or liquidity right. event. But we also look at, um, so what did that investment allow us to do? And so a number of our investments um, have been, you know, potential suppliers of the future for Chevron. So we've looked at um, how many of them we've tried in the company, how many, how many of the um, go on to be suppliers and we use them. And importantly, how, you know, what was the value to the bottom line by using that technology versus the other alternatives or the, what was currently there. So it's really around, um, you know, that, bottom line benefit rather than just the financial investment. Some other measures are more qualitative because the investment informs strategy. And so you can, you can give anecdotes of, of how it helped. Um, but we, so we have both hard, hard numbers and, and the qualitative. But definitely, if you, if you had to have a sliding scale, I would say it's more strategic than financial. But we, of course, want both because, you know, that's what we Right. Well, so you that's great describing, um, you know, what, what Chevron's point of view is. In what ways can be better for startups to seek funding from corporate venture capital versus a traditional VC firm? Well, so a couple of things. And, um, you know, and I think we're known um, as a pretty good investor. And the savviest CEOs actually go and look for references for their potential investors. And so I've heard you know, I've, I've heard that uh, come back to us, partly because we're consistent and so forth. But we, we see something that we really, that we like. And so we, um, so we are betting on success. Um, we understand the problem. Um, and, you know, we have domain knowledge in, because we invest in energy innovation, um, things that can help the energy system. So we understand that. Um, we know how to scale. Mm -hmm. um, we have what some might call a test kitchen. We can do trials on their technology. That is huge. And that's something uh, financial VC can't do is that we can, whether it's software, hardware, process tech, we have figured out, so how do you figure out whether this thing works and what would it add value to Chevron? And so we spend a lot of time thinking about that. That feedback to the startup is, is really important because they may think it works, but it, the validation is really important to them. And then we, we have experience in scaling technology and, and energy innovation without scale is, is, is really, it's interesting, but it's not really impactful. And so we will help with scale once it's been developed. Yeah, so you, thank you for that. And so you mentioned you, you really like the firms that you invest in. So just briefly, how do you usually see firms go through your investment process? And do you like to invest at seed, series A, series B? I mean, where, where's your niche in terms of where you come in? Yeah, so anytime we say what our sort of secret, you know, <clears throat> sweet spot is, as they would say in the venture world, um, you're going to find all kinds of exceptions. Sure. And so if, I, if we looked over the whole portfolio, A and B are um, probably where we first get in. Uh, we have recently, in the last few years, done more pre-Series A. We have some tools to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, 
And uh, we have been with companies as they've gone AB all the way out to FGH. Um, so I think when, we, when you go out further, the technology's been de-risked and our ability to both influence and support in that de-risking is, is less. So that's why it's A and B. Um, we, we, the, the seed is really an early look. Um, and so, you know, again, all over the place, but probably most of them have been A and B when we got in. No, thank you for that. I'm sure <clears throat> there's many out there interested in hearing your perspective on that. And it's, it's such an exciting business. Um, but one thing is, you know, VC has been recognized as being pretty male dominated from an investment allocation standpoint, even though there's been many studies that show diversity of thought and experience yield better investment outcomes. I'm interested to know, um, do you see a different gender balance in corporate venture capital versus traditional VC or is it about the same? Uh, well, let me start with, you're right, it is male dominated. And I think on twofold, one is the investors and second is investees. Um, and the number of times I see a pitch deck and I look at the team and I go, okay, that, not surprising. So it's very male dominated. Um, I think there's a recognition of that and there's certain things that are changing, um, but it's a long way to go. So, so just some numbers so that people can get a sense of this. Um, so let's start with financial. Um, the, uh, the number of venture capital with two or more females has doubled in the last year and it's gone up to 14%. Oh, okay. That's pretty small. Um, the number of firms with zero partners is still a majority. Um, and so, you know, 85% of financial venture um, firms had no female partner. So it is, it is very male dominated. Um, on corporate, it's somewhat better, but it's still not where we want it to be. Um, and, and we're a member of the global corporate venturing, um, and that's really, it's not a trade group, but it's really the, probably the best um, association for people that do what we do. Some 80% of investment managers are men, and 80 86% of the organizations, the, the leaders of the organization are men. So, um, about two thirds of the corporate venture groups are either all men or predominantly men. Mm. So, so we, have a, we have a long way to go. I do think the corporates can take a lead and I know global corporate venturing, this is one of our key initiatives is what are all the actions we can take? Partly because we're associated with corporations that have very strong um, approaches and, and, uh, around diversity and inclusion. Um, but it is a combination of technology, investment, commercial, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that have to be right for someone to be a successful investment manager. And then, you know, we've got to do that and also try to increase, improve the balances. Yeah, sure. I, it's a daunting challenge for sure. And, and as you've described, I mean, Chevron and everyone else is continuing to evolve as an organization to address those challenges. Do you, do you see any changes in the organization to respond to, you know, what's being called the energy transition in terms of, you know, I guess roles or people involved, <laughs> best way to put it? Yeah, so maybe just back up and talk about how Chevron views the energy transition and then our role in it, because I think sure. there's two different things that are related. So, yeah. you know, so, um, you know, 
energy demand is going to grow and the future of energy is going to be lower carbon. And we support Paris um, and, um, you know, there's a lower carbon component to that. We also believe oil and gas will play a vital role. Um, most forecasts would say by 2040 that still half of the total primary energy demand will be oil and gas, but it will need to be lower carbon. Mm -hmm. um, and so we believe, um, you know, reducing that carbon intensity of oil and gas is one of the key opportunities for Chevron. Um, so what are we doing about it? So, and, you know, three things, because usually you have a plan that has three things. So one is, is lowering the in carbon intensity of our own operations. And that's a wide variety of things from carbon capture and storage to energy efficiency to optimization, lots of different things. Um, and and, we, and we, we have an inventory and a set of opportunities for that across the globe. And we have targets um, around both the oil value chain and gas value chain. And those metrics um, factor into the compensations of most every employee, not just our executives. The second is incorporate renewables into our business, renewables and offsets. So um, we don't have a separate renewables business, but we believe in both the downstream and the upstream, that integration of the renewables into our product mix as well as our electricity uh, requirements is, is important. And so there's a number of different initiatives there. And the last one really comes home to um, our organization is we don't have all the technology we need and the we is the global we uh, that we need for this energy transition. In order to meet the ambitions set out in Paris, we do not have all the technology. So our third one is around invest in technology and, and um, that can scale and scale commercially. So we have a broad aperture around technology that we believe will play a role in the energy transition. And so we invest pretty broadly. And then we look for those areas where we believe um, there is a, a scale and an ambition for Chevron to play a large role. Lots, lots going on in that area. No, absolutely, lots going on in that area. And um, you mentioned you, you mentioned technologies, and I know that your your recently well, 2018, your future energy fund investments um, are focused on disruptive technologies that either lower energy emission sources or lower emissions from oil and gas. And some of those technologies have a direct link to Chevron's operations and some don't. And I'd love to hear an example of, a, of one that's a strategic step out that has allowed you to access these technologies outside of the oil and gas sector. And if you, if you want to mention one that has been integrated into your operations, that would be great too. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so we currently have two funds that we're doing direct investments out of. We also mm -hmm. invest in funds, but we have two. One is core, so that should be clear. We look at our core assets and look at how we position them to succeed in the future. And, and success is higher returns, lower carbon. So there are technologies that work on both of those problems, and there's, tech, and there's technologies that cut across both. And then future is really starts with that energy system, looking out to you know, out decades and 
and what are going to be the critical innovations that are going to move the needle on that energy transition. So if I think about the, um, you know, our core, um, I'll, I'll give you an example um, where um, we've invested in a thermocomposite pipe, okay, okay. thermoplastic composite pipe. Um, doesn't sound like rocket science, um, but you, you know, back when we were flying, there was a bunch of that stuff in airplanes and stuff. Um, <clears throat> that has application across both onshore, offshore, lowering the cost of insulation, increasing the lifetime of assets. So that one, clearly the Chevron use case is really important. Um, so one that doesn't have a connection with Chevron. Well, I'll, I'll do one that has a connection with Chevron as part of the energy transition. Carbon capture. <clears throat> Carbon capture, use, and storage, really important process and um, essential to meet, the, uh, to meet the ambitions of Paris. Um, cost of carbon capture is very high, particularly for dilute streams. So we have invested in three companies that seek to lower that cost of carbon capture. So that is one that we see the use cases inside Chevron um, and looks to lower carbon. So I'll, I'll, I'll look at one that you might be surprised at, which is um, we invested in the leading company relative to EV charging infrastructure. Mm -hmm. so oil is integrally uh, associated with transportation and transportation with oil. Um, so we invested in an EV charging company. Um, and we really wanted to know how do you make money in that, in that value chain? Because it would be different than um, you know, our retail fuels business. Who makes money? And <clears throat> is the charging infrastructure a bottleneck or is it, you know, is it um, kind of come along with the penetration? And, you know, where do people charge? So we had a lot of questions about that. There were opportunities because we have very large market shares in places um, with the traveling public, but we also just wanted to fundamentally understand this and getting inside of a company like that allows you to understand it. So, um, you know, things like that may, may make you, your head scratch, but we're thinking about the future and mm -hmm. things that today maybe look like a, a threat are the kinds of things that we need to understand to either dodge around or turn a threat into an opportunity. Mm. No, thank you for sharing that. Um, that. That investment is very interesting in terms of how it overlays into the existing energy infrastructure that we're all used to using, going to service stations and what have you. Um, you mentioned decarbonization and fossil fuels, and I think um, what we hear a lot about is the focus being on fossil fuels used for transportation. But as we know, there's much, much more that would need to be done to reach the tar targets that are set by the Paris Agreement. And you mentioned carbon capture utilization and storage, and that's being mentioned more and more as part of um, the decarbonization equation. And I think one of your portfolio companies is carbon engineering, which plants to capture CO2 from the atmosphere and convert that into synthetic fuels. And as you mentioned, it's very expensive. I mean, what are some of the challenges with scaling up um, those direct air capture technologies? Yeah, so uh, thanks for the plug on that. And, you know, carbon capture can be from process streams. We're going to talk about that relative to Gorgon, if, if, you're, if the audience knows about that investment to flue gas, but 
probably the hardest one is for out of the atmosphere. And the bulk of the CO2 is in the atmosphere at 410, 415 ppm. So it's very dilute and it's at atmospheric pressure. So that's a really hard science and engineering problem. Mm -hmm. um, and, and carbon engineering and, and other companies have um, um, put together, uh, developed technology to be able to capture it, concentrate it, and then you, you know, their, their ideas then can you convert it into fuels. So I think that front end piece, if you just think about it, um, it's very energy intensive. So what you don't want to do is, is create emissions while you're trying to capture emissions, you know, right, exactly. a little bit of a circular argument. So yeah. they're looking for how can you do that as energy efficiently as possible and how can the energy source that you're using be low carbon. So one of the things we were interested in was they um, proposed to use renewable energy to do that. So renewable energy in an industrial process is, is you know, is one of those key breakthroughs that we wanted to understand. Um, you know, then you've got all the steps and the, the integration all the way through to the fuels. Um, you know, they've proven it out at a pilot stage. Um, then, you know, they're in the process of launching the first plant. So first of a kind is what they would call it. So there is technology, um, technology challenges. There is financing. Um, because you need to get investors that are willing to invest in a first plant. Um, there are policy angles to this. Um, there's infrastructure if you have to move the if if you have to move the CO2, um, depending on what you're going to do with it. So lots of different things. Um, and but you know, direct air capture is going to play a role, just like I said, CCUS in general is going to play a role. So we want to encourage the development of this and we want to understand what parts um, are, you know, going to be challenging and how you, how you get over that challenge. Um, no, thank you for that. And you, yeah, there's definitely lots of challenges around direct air capture technology and policy things that, that need to be sorted out. Um, but speaking of CCS, I know a lot of our audience is from Australia and, um, wait, before I talk about that question, I just want to remind everyone, please send your questions through, uh, to the chat box for Barbara because, because we've got this great opportunity to talk to her. So I'd love to see some more questions out there from our audience. Um, so speaking of CCS, um, the Gorgon project and for background, the project is located at the Gorgon LNG plant on Barrow Island off the coast of Western Australia and it's one of the largest CCS projects and it captures some of the CO2 from the gas processing uh, operations of the LNG plant and stores it um, under Barrow Island and so I'd love to hear you, your thoughts, your perspective on that project. Yeah, so I mean I'll focus, I guess on, you know, it really really intersects the future of energy in two in, in two intersections. One is that it's LNG, right? Mm -hmm. And it's going to be delivering gas to, or it is delivering gas to a number of different countries in Asia as those countries increase their demand for energy because most of the energy demand increase is in the developing world. And um, 
it can, in addition to um, meeting increased demand, it can also be a cleaner substitute um, in the power uh, generation side than, than certainly than coal. Um, so the LNG part is a part of the future of energy, but the piece that you highlighted was CCS. And this is, so it is a, you know, one of the largest um, carbon capture. And just to get an idea, um, you know, to, to date it's been 3 million tons of CO2. And most of us don't think in terms of tons of CO2. Um, um, it'll ultimately be 4 million tons of CO2 a year. And that's about, um, that's equivalent. And I just have the stat because you have to have something that makes you think, you know, you can compare it to about a million electric vehicles if you thought about the difference between ICE and electric vehicles. So it's, um, so it's, it's a needle mover. Um, and it's, a, and it's um, addressing um, about 40% of the emissions of Gordon. So it's producing LNG in a lower carbon way, which mm -hmm. is, you know, that's part of where we see our opportunity in, in the future of energy is to provide the energy that, that um, countries need, and it's affordable and reliable, um, but, it's, but it's cleaner um, than it would be otherwise. So um, I think the experience is, is, I mean, the actual project is important and it's impactful and you can tell by the scale, it's, it's certainly relevant. It also helps us think about uh, the CCUS um, that we, um, you know, our ambitions across the globe and our learnings from Gorgon will be used, um, you know, in, in other geographies and in, uh, in other types of operating environments. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. I think with the large projects like that, it's a lot of learning by doing because the scale of the, the, scale of the project itself and, and what it's tasked to do, uh, there's a lot of uncertainties that just by doing one of them, the cost tends to continue to drop significantly as more and more of these of these plants are built. So thank you for that. Um, and I'm just going to remind the audience once more, please put your question through. We've had a couple come through since my last reminder, but would love to hear from the audience. So one more question, though, before we do open up that Q&A. Um, you said with regard to the energy transition, and I know you talked about this a little bit before, but you said with regard to the energy transition to a low carbon economy that, and I quote, the energy system is large and complex and it will take a multitude of stakeholders to address the challenges that lie in front of us. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Chevron fits into that vision? Yeah, no. So I think it's a good quote. Thanks. Yeah, it's a great for, quote. Thanks for reinforcing <laughs> why the person that said that's pretty good. Um, but, uh, um, you know, first of all, it, the energy system is large and complex and, um, and, a number of different energy sources and value chains will play a role in this energy future. So obviously, um, you know, we are, we know the role and the importance of decarbonizing our own operations is, it, it plays in that system, as well as um, partnering with others in terms of decarbonizing the industry. But this, this is not going to be solved by one company. Mm -hmm. uh, one sector or one country. And so partnership is really important. And, you know, in my world, and I'm just a piece of this, is we, but I think it's a microcosm of how Chevron approaches things. You know, we, we've demonstrated that 
partnership is a key part of um, how we think about our company. And we partner with those who look like us, those who don't look like us, those who play different roles but see a common objective. And you know, I do think in the energy transition, the ability to work with lots of different kinds of companies, um, different sources of energy, different parts of the value chains, um, different types of investors um, is going to be important. And you know, I think we've demonstrated that in the steps that we've taken in the base business, but also as we've um, begun executing our energy transition strategy, and I talked about the three parts of it, um, there are clear examples of partnership in each one of them. Um, and so, you know, I think it rings true to what we've done and it will be required um, to be successful in the energy transition. No, oh, thank you for that. That's, and that's a great, great way to um, back up that quote. So very well done. <laughs> um, we've got a couple specific questions about um, CTV. I hope you don't mind answering those. Um, one question was that we got was, um, are there characteristics of a best fit ecosystem that CTV looks for when they're looking for startup companies to partner with? I guess that's assuming that you really need to look. Um, just curious though, are there, different, are there different kinds of ecosystems that you prefer to partner with versus others from the CTV standpoint? So, and so for folks that aren't familiar with ecosystems, you know, it's really, startups tend to cluster and they cluster in around universities, they cluster um, in certain, certain areas, certain geographies. Um, and so first of all, we invest wherever the investment it needs to be, you know, it's around the globe. Um, we, um, you know, I think, I think the things that make a healthy ecosystem are, you know, research universities nearby because, uh, um, you know, the, the investments we make tend to have a strong technical component to them, whether it's hard tech or soft tech. Um, I think an understanding of the problem sets. Um, and so a lot of the places that have had um, foundational parts of in, in energy um, have been helpful for us. Um, we, I think having a, um, having a very collaborative system, as I said, it takes a lot of different kinds. So those are some of the things we look for. Um, and, and the number of ecosystems is increasing. Mm -hmm. um, people tend to think it's all on the West Coast, um, but it's not, it, it's still a lot of it's in the US and, and North America in general, but Europe has a strong uh, innovation um, set of ecosystems, Israel, uh, various parts of Asia. So, um, you know, I think we, we try to have a connection into the key ones, particularly where we see the connection with energy innovation. Okay. Well, you, you did mention investing globally, and I know you make, you make investments where the, the company is performing globally. I guess one specific question we have is, does CTV invest in international companies? Um, does a company need to have a U.S. entity and traction in the U.S. market for you to be interested in talking with them? No, we, so since, since you, you know, you're Australian, I can tell this story. If you were Norwegian, I probably wouldn't. But um, <laughs> when I moved to Houston, 
Um, and I took over this role, I noticed that our portfolio had more companies from Stavanger, Norway than Houston, Texas. And I was like, that's very nice. Stavanger, Norway is nice, but why? And of course, you all know that, you know, the energy connection with Stavanger, Norway. So, so we, you know, so we can invest um, where the companies are. Um, technology is reasonably portable from the standpoint of where we might use it. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I don't think, you know, we're not certainly not limited by that. Fair enough. Yeah. And um, one more question again about just, just CTV and your investment climate. Yeah. Um, can you share a big picture? Um, what have been the one or two most significant impacts to your investment process during COVID? Has it, has it slowed you down? Same pace? Um, any any un unanticipated benefits from the shift that we've made during these times? Yeah. No, thanks for that. Um, so one is we've done a lot more things virtual, which I'm sure everyone yeah. on the call has done. In fact, we're doing this virtually. Um, so our due diligence um, has been more um, virtual. We used to have this um, sort of requirement that we had a couple of people go and what you might call kick the tires on the company. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that's hard to do in COVID, so we've had to be clever about how we would do it. And, and but also some of the companies are, particularly the software companies, are increasingly going uh, virtually. So we've had to change a little bit of how we do due diligence. So that's one. Um, you know, listen, the you know the long term um, views uh, around the energy transition, around the need for technology to um, to be able to pull it off because I think one of your questions came in, we're not on track and you're right. We have to pick up the pace, not slow down the pace to be able to meet these objectives. Mm -hmm. um, so none of that has changed. So in fact, I, you know, I think the, the drive for that has increased. So we've, you know, had to change how we've worked, but um, I think there's, um, you know, there, there's no shortage of opportunities. There's no shortage of money for this, this, um, uh, this work um, and so the team is as busy as ever. No, that's great to hear that it hasn't slowed you down and I do you want to pick up on that question a bit more um, and just in terms of since we're not on track to meet um, what's been agreed to in the Paris Accord or Paris Agreement is do you think that where do you think that the world should focus the most I guess I know you're focusing on the technical um, do you want to add any more to that? Well it's you know, it's, it's technology that scales, it needs policy, it needs infrastructure, um, it needs, sometimes it need, needs customer behaviors. Um, I, I'm going to put a plug in for um, a, a study that just got out that might be interesting to people. Um, and I was on a panel, uh, a Sarah Week panel last week. Um, uh, it came out of Columbia, Julie, uh, Julio Friedman um, mm -hmm. talked about it, where it, it basically took all the technologies and looked at the levelized cost of carbon abatement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can think about it from the standpoint of, you know, if you were the king of France, you know, what would you do? And what, what you would want to do is to do the things that have the biggest impact. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was a really interesting study because um, that's not how all the policy has been done. 
and you know you can't be the king of France and just dictate things but um, and I just say France um, <laughs> but you know I think it does help policymakers and it helps companies think about you know what at the end of the day where are the big movers and so, uh, you know, I do think that conversation has to, you know, has to increase in volume um, and looking at the things that matter. And obviously, um, you know, if you look at it, there's some things that you're spending in a tremendous amount for every ton of carbon mitigated and you're missing maybe some of the low hanging fruit. And so I'm hopeful that there will be a conversation that intersects that and you know and brings that conversation in because at the end of the day there's a carbon you know there there there's a you know carbon balance or a carbon account and so you want to hit the big things where you can I'm so glad you mentioned that study, Julio Friedman, Columbia University, I'll get the name wrong, Center for Energy Policy, but the levelized cost of carbon, I looked at it myself. And it is amazing when you see, for example, how much was spent on cash for clunkers in terms of the amount CO2 per ton that was removed from the atmosphere versus other technologies, which are perceived as being very expensive, but they actually provide a lot more bang for the buck in terms of removing carbon from the atmosphere in terms of decarbonization. So thanks, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, and, um, I, and I will say we all have a, a, a job to do to educate people about the energy system, about this, I mean, it's complex, um, about what it takes to actually decarbonize um, and, you know, and, 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 and talk about the science and technology aspects of that. Um, and I, you know, I thank Julio for championing that because it's, I think it's a good piece of work. Absolutely. Great. Hopefully it will frame, it'll frame up a more rational discussion about it. That's my opinion, not yours. Um, in any case, um, I think we're, we're close to the end of our time, Barbara. And um, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to share your insights with us. You answered all of my questions so thoroughly. I think, I think we're done with you for today. So we, we sincerely appreciate having you as a speaker. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Hopefully some of it resonated and I would maybe finish with where I started on, on um, maybe two things. One is, um, you know, what does the future of energy look like? And, you know, it's lower carbon, oil and gas play a, a, a vital role in that. Um, and, and the second was, why was I selected for this job? It was an ability to say both yes and no, which are probably two good words that we all should be able to use um, at the right time. Yes, and I'll definitely be taking that away from me, saying yes and no. Thank you for that. All right. And so let me just tell our audience, um, this is our final webinar in the current series on women in technology. And if you've enjoyed this webinar, please visit our website because we have two previous ones that we've done on this topic as well. And starting in January, we'll be kicking off a new series about women in energy and the environment. So stay tuned for details on that. And so on the behalf of the AACC, I'd like to thank everyone for attending today. And if you're interested in our other events and podcasts, please check our website at www.aacc-texas.org. Thanks very much. Thanks, Barbara. All right.